Well, before we get into our actual teaching time this morning, uh, first of all, I want to say it's a pleasure to be back here again. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity that I have to come up here and help out good friends at uh, Grace Covenant Church, and uh, always a pleasure uh, to do that. Uh, Daniel is uh, giving out a handout to go with the uh, teaching that we have today. We'll be back in James chapter 1. Uh, Luke read for us James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, we spent the last time that I was here covering the first eight verses of James chapter 1. Uh, today we're going to concentrate uh, on James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And then, Lord willing, I'm scheduled to be back here again on January the 19th. And during two services on January the 19th, it's my intention that we will cover uh, verses 13 all the way through verse 18. And so, as you can see, this idea that I've entitled The Trouble with Trouble actually takes uh, takes five good uh, teaching times in order to be able to uh, get somewhat of a grasp. I do want to say that uh, by no means are we being exhaustive in our in our coverage of these verses, though. Uh, Brother Glenn Schreiber and I talked about one thing that that uh, that needs to be covered as we consider verses 1 through 18 that we haven't considered and uh, I don't intend to uh, consider, consider it uh, unless it gets uh, part of a significant discussion, and that's the entire idea of discipline, God's discipline for our sins as it relates to how troubles come into our life and how we handle trouble. I'd like to begin this morning with prayer, uh, and we will uh, then turn our attention to James chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for that last song, because we recognize that you are holy that you are completely, fully, holy, without any mixture of any unholiness at all. And not only are you holy, Lord, but you set before us a standard of holiness, a standard of holiness that if we were left to ourselves, we could never keep, we could never even try to keep, we could not even pretend to keep it, Lord. However, you've given us your Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit within us enables us to strive toward holiness, to strive for the perfection that you would have us see in our life. And although we know we will sin every day, Lord, we learn to put away sin from our lives. Lord, one of the most holy things we can do is to open your word. Open your word and consider what it says to us. And not just read it, Lord, but have it affect our lives. Lord, we pray that you'll take the words that we read today, the teaching the things other people may share, that you'll edify us, that you'll sanctify us. Make us a congregation, Lord. Please, in the youth. Amen. Alright, let's turn in our Bibles, James chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 again, and then we were going to consider in detail uh, verses 9 through 12 of James chapter 1. So, James chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greed. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse, diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect in entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. 
Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of life, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will began he us with the word of truth, that we should be kind the first fruits of his creatures. Now, way of introduction, by way of introduction this morning, I want to think on a couple of questions for a few minutes. One of, the, uh, one of the biggest tests that we may ever face in our relationships is the test of money and material things. Either having an abundance of money and material things or having a lack of money and material things. And maybe one of the biggest test, faces, tests that we face in our relationships, not only in our relationships with other people, but in our relationships to God. Now, what can money do and what can money not do? Somebody give me an example of something money what money can do. Money can fill in the what? Money can purchase necessities. Money can, John? Money can buy you items of luxury. Alright. Money can be saved. Money can be Money can be an idol, very good. Now we're getting a little deeper. Money can be used wisely. Money can be used for evil. Money can be used foolishly. So there's a lot of things money can do, right? We can put a lot of characteristics on money. Some of those things that we mentioned are good, right? Money can be used to feed the poor. Would that be good or bad? Good. I, I, I dare say that most of us here would think using money to feed the poor <coughs> is a good thing to do. Now, we mentioned some bad things. Money can be used to... What are some bad things? Money can be used to gamble. Money can be used to buy illegal drugs. Money can be used to buy alcohol. Money can be used to get drunk. I dare say that we can think of many things that money can do that are bad. So, when we ask the question about money, does that make money good or make money evil? It's amoral. What does amoral mean, John? It has no morality. What can do money then? with the ability to be good or evil. It's the way it's used. It's the heart of the person 
It's using the money that makes the difference between whether money is good or evil. Now, we talked about some of the things money can do. Let's talk about some of the things money cannot do. What are some things that money cannot do? Money cannot, money cannot buy happiness. Money cannot buy happiness. I dare say that all we have to do is look at the tabloid that one of the latest entertainment newspapers, and we're going to read the story about a multi-millionaire actor or actress in the middle of the most miserable time they've ever had in their lives, right? They're going to a divorce and they find out that their, their, their spouse is cheating on them or they find out that their kids are doing things that are really bad. Now, you would think that if you had multiple millions of dollars that you would buy your way to happiness, right? But it's not true. Money cannot buy happiness. Now, what else can money not do? Money cannot buy salvation. That, that's, you know, I think if we don't carry anything else away from here today, that may be one thing important, is that money has nothing to do with our salvation. A lot of money doesn't help us be saved. A lack of money doesn't hinder us from being saved. What else? Does money buy security? Now, anybody ever heard of the Great Depression? Did money buy security at all? Money cannot buy security. Now, we've already said that money in itself is not evil. The Bible specifically says something about money and evil, but what does the Bible say about money and evil? It says the love of money is the root of, depending on what versions look at, all kinds of evil or all evil. The idea is not that money is evil, and not that the love of money is, is evil, although it is. The idea of the verse is that the love of money is the root from which all kinds of evil spring from. Now, don't hear me wrong. I did not say the love of money is not evil. I've said that verse is not saying that. I contend that the love of money is evil because of the few fellows that said something about money can be an idol. But the verse is not saying love of money is evil. It's saying that the love of money is a root from which all kinds of evil, all manner of evil, springs from. What are those evils? If you use love money, what kind of other evils arise from that? The, the commendation of man, yes. Yeah. The approval of man. Selfishness, all right, very good. Anybody, you know anybody that's got a lot of money, are they ever content with the amount of money they have? No, there's selfishness there. There's another word that goes right along with that, and that is greed or covetousness. There we go. And so we can see that this idea of love of money, while it's evil in itself, that verse is saying that not only is the love of money evil, but there's all kinds of evil that spring from this love of money. Now, we must turn this idea on its head for a minute, because if we think from the Bible, some of the richest people in the known world at the time of the Bible were described as being godly. Oh, three, name three. I've got three on my list. Name three. 
Abraham. Abraham. Job. Solomon. Well, Solomon may have had some issues, though. I don't have them on my list, man. And that'd be a, that'd be a good discussion question about about Solomon. I mean, Solomon, you know, you may be talking about early in his life or later in his life, and so that's you know, just how probably he was. David? David, that's another one. Not on my list, but that's, that's another one. I'm looking for, I'm, I've got one more particular. Chosen. The second most powerful man in the entire world at this time. Second only to Pharaoh. Savior of the world. Of the known world of that country. Yet he's rich. He's immensely rich. Yet he's described as robbers. So just the fact that somebody is rich does not make them evil and doesn't make them ungodly. Now, shift here, another discussion question. And I'm taking this into a practical level this thing. Larry Burkhead, who was a financial teacher who died a few years ago, a Christian financial teacher, once said that 90% of all family discord is related to money. Do you think that's true or false? 90% of all family discord is related to money. True or false? Probably, okay, that's probably true. Probably true. Anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons that I'm going to money is people, if they don't have the money, they can't get into it. Yeah, I like that, Herman. Having the money enables you to get in more trouble than not having the money. Oh, I like that. That's, that's very good. Uh, now, I think 90%, that may be true for some families. Some families, especially if they don't have a lot of money, a lot of this one may be related to money. However, I don't know that every, for every family that's particularly true. But nobody says, no, absolutely not. That, that, you know, money causes no discord. Money is a major source of discord. Among families. So here's where we're headed today. What is our proper attitude, our proper biblical attitude towards money, material things, possessions, riches, importance? What is the biblical, what are, what are we to learn biblically about those? And what I think we have in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, is the biblical view on how to look at richness and importance. So that's where we're headed today. Uh, and I call this the greatest test we may ever face. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. We'll read them here again and then talk about it. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his way. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, we're going to begin with verse 9, and the first point that I want to bring out here is the exaltation 
of the poor. Verse 9 says this, that the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. The first question that we must ask ourselves as we consider that verse is what does that phrase low degree mean Some versions use the word low estate. What exactly does that word mean? Not thinking highly of himself, uh, it, that, that is one of some of the literal definitions of this word are depressed, humiliated, but it fits in the context here. When you look at the context and figure out what James is trying to say by the person of low degree, they're contrasted with the rich. They're contrasted with the rich. And so while we might say a person who is perpetually sick might be a person of low estate or low degree. Or we might say a person who is, as some of us says, poor in spirit, would be a person of low estate or food. However, that is not the meaning that we have here at all. The meaning falls within the context, and the context is where the plan said, is that it's contrasted in verse 10 with the one who is rich. Therefore, as I talk about this brother of low estate or low degree, I will use the word poor. Quite a bit because that is the contrast we're looking at here, poor and rich. Now, in our life, we may be called to pass a test called poverty. And if so, what does verse 9 say should be our response to that test? Let the low brother, or let the brother of low degree do what? Right, glory or rejoice in that position of low degree. Uh, the, uh, some versions use the word boast here. Uh, in the original text, the word rejoice or boast is placed at the beginning of the script of the sentence in Greek. If you read verse 9 in the Greek, the first word that you get to is that word that is translated as rejoice or boast. Now, uh, it's often the case in Greek, not uniformly, but often the case in Greek, that when you have a word that is thrown at the beginning of the sentence, it is there because it is the most important point. So what's the most important point that James wants us to know about the brother of low degree, the poor, the poor brother? The most important thing that James wants us to know is to call rejoice in that position. Now, we're not left there with just the rejoicing. We're left, we're given a reason. Why rejoice? What does the end of verse 9 say? The brother of low degree is to rejoice. Why? He is exalted. Now, John, you're going to have to help me out with this for a while. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're going to have to because See, I, I, I'm thinking the mind of a natural man. And I'm thinking, if I am poor, that, okay, I might can learn to rejoice in my poverty if I'm a Christian. Okay? You wouldn't. You wouldn't so far. I might can say, you know, being rich is not everything in the world. But then I sit the thing in that I'm exalted. How does that work? 
started to work in my mind. I know I, I, if I'm a poor person, I know I don't have a you personal know, low degree, but I can rejoice because I know money doesn't mean anything. But how is it that I'm exhausted if I'm poor? How is that? You have a clue. Because of his faith. Because that, that, that's, that's a very good that, that's a very good thing. Because of his faith. God is still performing the form of the rich in faith. That, that, thank you, Glenn. I appreciate you adding that in. Alright, I've got some glasses on here. And the problem we have when we look at this verse a lot is we put on these glasses called life. And we think that being poor equals not being lost. When we put on glasses that we call life. But when we put on biblical glasses, we find out that exaltation and poorness can very easily go together. Now let me just feed you a few verses, and some more verses might come to your mind as, as I read some of these verses. I want to show you how being poor and being exalted are not mutually exclusive terms. Just consider uh, Romans 8, 16 17. Romans 8, 16 17. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the children that heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ, there so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. Now, did anybody hear anything about rich or poor in terms of material goods and that? Did anybody hear anything? No. But what do we hear? That everybody who has the Spirit of God is a child of God. If you're a child of God, you are in heir of God, provided that we suffer with You see that being poor, that suffering the same thing as Jesus Christ, and after all, are we not told about, told about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ had nowhere to lay his head. Is that not an indication of his poverty? When Jesus had to pay the temple tax, what did he do? Right. He did not have a coin to pay the temple tax. When, they, when, he, when he wanted to make a, uh, a point using the denarius, did he pull one out of his pocket? No. He said, show me a denarius. They handed him a denarius. A single silver coin. <laughs> so, Jesus himself, by all indications, was poor. He suffered in that way. It should not be uh, a surprise that we are called to suffer that way too. If Jesus himself, the very Son of God, we are told the same thing about ourselves, that we are the sons and daughters of God. <coughs> Another verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And I believe this is the one you just finished quoting here, Glenn. We'll just get, it, we'll get the verse reference to go with it here. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For ye know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now, did I just contradict myself? I just told you Jesus Christ was more likely poor. The second Corinthians 8 9 says he was rich. In what way is Jesus Christ rich? 
right. We think about Philippians chapter 2. We do not consider robbery to be equal to God, to be equal to God. But if he himself made himself, uh, literally made himself a low state, we not, I didn't look at this, but we were surprised if it's not the exact same word that we have here in the day. So, yes, Jesus Christ is rich. He created everything. Creator of the universe. Uh, one more passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. There it is. There's an idea of being an heir again. But listen to the description of it. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now what I want to tell you there before we go on and read the last two verses is all of those words, incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, reserved in heaven, are all put in contrast in material things. All of those things, all of the things, money, gold, silver, cars, houses, whatever you want to work into that, are corruptible, they are defiled, they fade away, and there's nowhere in heaven for But the inheritance we have, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, preserved in heaven from you, who are kept by the power of heaven, I continue to read verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith and salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein, and this is why I kept going, wherein ye greatly rejoice. So now, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation. You remember the theme of James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18? The overarching theme of the whole passage, in my, in my estimation, is the theme of trials and temptation. This idea of being in a low estate, rejoicing in that low estate, even though faced by the trials and temptations, particularly what we're talking about today, the trials and temptations of poverty. Now, do you might have any thoughts on that before I go on? Because I want to take you to the Old Testament and show you the church. <coughs> And, and you know, I've called this stuff about it for, and I can make an exception that point. If you take us in this room, we are, I'm looking around, we are all in probably the top. 15% of wealth in the entire world. 85% of the world is third quarter of this nation. However, we don't live in 85% of the world. We live in Alabama. And it costs money. Lots of money to buy things here in Alabama. Instead of going down the road, we have to pass out the past week and get it and everything's very cheap down there, but people don't take it. You come up here to the extent that it's relevant. So yes, you are, in terms of actual material goods, you are in the top 15%. That doesn't make life any easier. Nobody in here is what I believe would be called rich. 
to return to what we have. Okay? I just want to make that point. Uh, and so, you know, you go, if you go to Nicaragua or someplace like that, and you walk around and you see the abject poverty that those people live in, that they are living in poverty, and you have a great standard of religion compared to all that, but you still are not what I think this country is calling rich. Okay? And that's a, you know, if you want to have that discussion, that'd be a great discussion to have at some point. As to just, just exactly how rich are we here in the today? Now, I said I wanted to take you to the Old Testament to show you an illustration. The illustration that I want to show you is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, and what I mean, I'm going to read the whole chapter. The whole chapter is not that long. And I want to show you an illustration of this principle of a brother of low estate being highly exalted. Now, I'm not saying that the person here is necessarily a brother in terms of the technical New Testament definition of a brother, but it is an illustration nonetheless that I want to give to you. It's the story of a man by the name of Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan, and who remembers who Jonathan is? Anybody? Oh, yeah, we're right there. Okay. Nathan? Nathan's friend, right? He's also a grandson, or his son, son of Saul, King Saul. So Mephibosheth is grandson of King Saul. In fact, he is the only living heir of King Saul. And now David is king when he comes to second chapter 9. David is the new king outside the line of Saul. Let's see what David does with this person who is the rightful king of Israel according to human terms, according to the sin. So here we go. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David says, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is Ziba. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may shew the kindness of John unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of the seer, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And King David sent and fetched him out of the house of the seer, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face in his reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not. Why would they need to do that? Yeah, he had a very bad relationship with Saul. Okay? If this was a typical nation, what would happen to the Pugacheck at this point? He'd be put to death. Why? Because he represented a threat to David's throne. So David, the first thing he says to him, and I want you to see you now, this is one of the many instances in the Bible. The first thing David has to say in the hymn is what? Fear not. We're just coming through the Christmas season. 
what's the first thing the angels have to say to everybody? Fear not. Why? Because when you come face to face with the supreme power, your first thought is that it is your undoing. A lot of people say, well, those angels, they were just scary and all that. But no, those people are coming face to face with glory. The people, when they come face to face with glory, think about Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 2. What's the first thought of how people die when they come face to face with glory of God? This is why I'm So David says, and I'm not going to accept that. David said to me, Fear not, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself, that's his and said, What is thy servant, that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertains to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall fill the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that our lord the king hath commanded his servants, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table, as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants under Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did it continually at the king's table and was laid on both his pieces. Now, as we think about this story in context with the passage that we're looking at in James chapter 1 today, I, I want you to see that everything Mephibosheth received. The first thing that I want you to see is that he received the king's fellowship. How many times in there do you see the phrase, eat at my table? And I'm not looking for you to count. You say, once, twice, bunch of times. It is repeated several times in there. Uh, it's repeated uh, often in these verses. That the finisher is going to do what? He is going to eat at the king's that's the idea of having fellowship with the king. Now, the second thing that I want you to see is that he received the king's riches. What did the Sudeshef receive? In terms of uh, what Saul had. What? What? Everything that pertains to Saul, the law was in the That's all the land, all the possessions, So he received the king's riches. Verse 7. And they said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely shoot in kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land. There you go. All the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread and my table continue. So there it is. He received all the riches that had belonged to Saul, all his land. The third and most important, I want you to see that the Bible became part 
of the king's family. Now look at verse 11 very closely. And then it says, Leave unto the king, according to all that my Lord the king has commanded your servants, so shall my servants be. As for the Philistines, said the king, he shall eat at my table. We've already talked about eating at the table. How? As a guest? As one of the king's servants. Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on in the Why do the Finnish chefs receive all of these things? There's a couple of good reasons, but one I'm really looking for. Why do the Finnish chefs receive all of these things? What? All the Jonathan, all the Springer David. He's very close. He was poor, that's a good reason. He was the house of Saul. House of Saul. Jonathan is David's friend. The Fidushev is David is Jonathan's son. Why did the Fidushev receive all this? They put a few things together for you. First of all, it's because David was a human group. And second of all, because of the ineffective process. You might make an application on that. Do not serve a point of grace. Tell me not the children of God. Do we expect you to treat them any less? Does that mean money or riches? No, it doesn't mean money or riches. We have to remember, we're in spiritual. This is a physical example. Take this spiritual. And I encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you have any doubt or riches that you have received, have already received. And these are the cause. You serve great sin. And you're a child of God. Every Two very important, actually three very important words in life. Every one of them has meaning to have a every which means nothing but that. Spiritual, means we're not talking about physical, we're not talking about temporal, we're talking about spiritual. And the final blessing is a really good thing. And what are some of those things? If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, you see things like the predestined, and you see the Holy Spirit, and over and over. And I encourage you, and we won't take the time today to look at it, but I encourage you, if you want to see how rich you are, just read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, and see what you already have. I believe the word inheritance is in there. Uh, well, let's go back to James. Back to James uh, chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 10. We're going to move on to the second point. Now, if the first point is the exaltation of the poor, what would you expect the second point to be? It's going to be the humiliation of the rich. Very good. That is going for a good second point. Verse 10. James chapter 1, verse 10. But the rich, in that he is made low, because of the flower on the grass, he shall pass away. Now, there's a thing implied here that is not brought out in this verse, 
but it comes from verse 9. And I'm going to read verse 10 with the implied put in. But the rich should rejoice in his exaltation, in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. That is implied. That's coming over from verse 9. The rich is called to rejoice. Just like the poor is called to rejoice. But for an entirely different reason. But the rich, I think it's probably said too much in the last verse. Now let me read verse 10 again with the correctly correctly implied. I think I did it wrong. But the rich should rejoice in that he is made low. <coughs> because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. I think I did not say that. But the rich should rejoice in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. Now, why should the rich person rejoice? We're given a reason. There at the beginning of verse 10. Devastated, right? I mean, it, it, would, it would hurt bad, right? 
then you that what you're going to see. So, I, I hope that's not what your hope is putting you. That's, that's, what we're looking, that's what we're looking at here. We're going to come back to that question in a couple of minutes. But I want you to see that this test of riches is a hard test to pass. Perhaps harder than the test of poverty. Very familiar verses. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove from me vanity and lies. And here's where the Supreme Court comes Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Lest I be full, and here's where I want to put the emphasis. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is my Lord? Now, let's just complete the verse. For lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God, Lord, the name of my God in vain. Now, both of those things are bad, right? Stealing and taking the name of the Lord, God in vain, bad thing. If you're poor, that's what you need to avoid. So, look what to avoid if you're rich. What do you say? Lest I be poor and deny thee and say who is the Lord. You remember at the end of the Exodus when Israel was coming into the promised land and God in Deuteronomy chapter 6 goes into a, a, a long discourse about what's going to happen when they enter the promised land and he talks about all these wells that you're going to get that you haven't done and you haven't digged you haven't digged and all these orchards that you're going to get that you have planted, and all these houses you're going to have that you to build. What was the danger? God told him what the danger was going to be. He says, when you have done all these things, you're going to have to do it. What's the danger? The danger is self-reliance. And I'm guilty of that. I, I'm so guilty. I'll my hand. I say, I am guilty of self-reliance. Because I think when everything is going good, God will read you from the book. Okay? There's my confession for the day. Uh, now, God, I'm going to go back to the question again. I'm going to go back to the question of why should the rich person rejoice when he is made love? I'm going to give you some reasons here, okay? First, he has a new position. Mark 9.35 tells us what the correct position of the rich person should be. Mark 9.35, Jesus says this, And he, that is Jesus, sat down, that's the position of teaching, he's going to teach him something here, sat down and called the twelve, and called disciples, and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, he should be rich. Does he say that? No. The same should be last of all and servant of all. So, when you have this rich person and he thinks he's on top of the world and the riches pass away, fade away, he should rejoice because now he has the opportunity to live in that is to be a servant of God. Second, a 
new perspective. Back in James chapter 1, verse 11, you still should be looking at James chapter 1. Look at verse 11. Uh, it's going to give us a word picture. Where the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. That's talking about the rich man and all that wealth. There. What does the sun represent? We know this from the parable of the sower. What does the sun represent? What does the heat represent? It represents trials. Because trials come up and that burning sun rises. What happens to all that wealth? It withers like the grass. The flower falls. The grace of the fashion of the parish. So also tell the rich man fade away. In his way, or some person's finger in the midst of his. You see, rich people are often characterized as always being about something, always being busy with something, always doing something. But it's often characterized as something that is trained, as worthless, as insane. And when the top comes to trial and temptation and that burning sun and all that wealth station fades away, all of those worthless things are choose. That's what this is saying. That the, the rich person will fade away. It's making it like talking about passing away. It's like talking about dying. We're talking about all that frivolity goes away from the times of trial and persecution and temptation. So, that's what this verse is saying. And that's why I like, uh, I think the ESV thing is that in the midst of this pursuit, it's trying to do a, a, a very a difficult job in a brief tense, uh, of a, a continuous brief tense in the midst of this pursuit. While he's doing these things, and, and all this vanity, and when the sun comes up, not all things will Now, there's one thing that I want to point out before we move on to verse 12, and that's verses 9 through 10. And, uh, and what I want to do, uh, uh, I just want to show you a little bit of how some very theologians engage in the debate about verses 9 through 10. Look at verses 9 through 10. With I'm going to read Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. Now, there's a word in verse 9 that is missing in verse 10, a very relevant word. In verse 9, let the brother of low degree. You look at verse 10, where do you see the word brother? You don't see the word brother. This is a debate. Some believe that brother is implied in the verse 10. Some read into verse 10 the fact that the brother is not there at all is very significant. Do I have the answer to that debate? No, I really don't have the answer to that debate. And personally, I don't know that it, you need to make a distinction here. If I think,
Second, James tells us what the reward will be. What is that reward? For he will receive the crown of life. There we go, the crown of life. Uh, just a little bit more Greek. The Greek word here is not diadem. I think we recognize the word diadem. You know, that comes from one of our, our hymns. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him more of all. A diadem is a crown that you put on a king. That's not the word here. The word is the word stephanos. Now, it's not diadem, it's not the crown of the king. What type of crown is it? What's the stephanos? Yeah, you are exactly right, Luke. It is a crown given to an athlete who wins the race. Now, something ought to be clicking in your mind here. What was the requirement? To endure, to win, till you what? Receive the crown. So you receive the crown, and what's required to receive the crown? Not is a couple of things. First of all, is to finish the race, but also to well, no, 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 I'm bigger than this year. If you're going to be the athlete and you're going to receive the crown and step on us, you are required to do two things. You are required to run the race. You are required to finish the race. And you are required to win the race. <laughs> <laughs> the, the crown only goes to one person. What did Paul say? Run the race in such a manner as to win. You want another New Year's resolution? A New Year's resolution? There you go. I'm going to bring the race in such a manner that I'll be able to play. What's the race? This life. This is the day, chapter one. Enduring Now, third and last. Oh, no, no, here we go. Stephanus. Uh, there's one big difference between what we call Stephanus as a Christian and what the Greeks would call it. The Stephanus was usually made out of what? Leaves. Very good. And what happened to those leaves? Wither, fade away. We've already seen that in those words, right? But, 1 Corinthians 9.25, using the exact same word again, and every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible, perishable crown upon us, but we and imperishable and incorruptible. So, you know, it's great to win a race. We've got crown of these. All of us is to win the race of life. James is telling us to win the race of trials and temptation. And what's the, what's the, what's the prize? The Stephanus, the crown of an imperishable and third, James tells us what the resource will be to help us endure these tests, these trials, and faces. We come to the end of this lesson that I have for you. We ask ourselves this question. How can a person live this kind of life? I tell you that the answer is found in the last five words of verse 12. What are the last five words? 
and you got to be the team It might be what? To them or those that love him. Now, all the world can sit out there and talk about about these principles, right? About enduring temptation and about running the grace of life. The world can sit out there and talk about these kind of things. <coughs> but they don't have the resource. The resource, the last five words, the kind of person that God blesses is them that love First John chapter two verses fifteen to seventeen says this Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, as we've seen that before already today, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. If we say that we love the world, if we, actually, if we find that we love the world, it is like seeing the red oil light come on your dashboard. Now, there are a lot of ways to fix it. Right, Andrew? The red light comes on your dashboard. There's a lot of ways to fix that red light, right? You ignore it, and then it finally burns up. Okay? There's another way to fix it. Right. I'm down here overnight. And my favorite thing is you take a hammer, and you get that claw claw the dashboard, and that's why it goes up. Um, now, if the old light comes on on your dashboard, what's the first thing to do? Change oil and add oil to do that oil. There you go. Uh, now, if we find that we're loving the world, that ought to be a red light that comes from. And what do we need? Instead of loving the world, what's the last time I've worked for us? To them that love God. That's adding oil to that. When the red light of loving the world comes on, on your neck. 